Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we voraciously read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are a second chance, a new lease on life given to an epic story that was perhaps botched on screen. Whereas the arc of a virtuous hero turning to sadistic heel might seem rushed and unearned on film, a novelization can luxuriate in the long, gradual, convincing degradation of a character's morals. It can, through gripping prose and entirely invented scenes and subplots, be the movie you wish the movie had been. Novelizations are a triumph. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Hannah Blackman. And I'm Andrew Marco. Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, is a 2005 space opera directed by George Lucas. It is the third and final film in the Star Wars prequel trilogy and the final Star Wars film of the Lucas era before his sale of the franchise to the Walt Disney Company in 2013, for better or worse. Revenge of the Sith chronicles the Jedi Order's last-ditch efforts against the rising political influence of the evil Sith. The story centers around the steadfast mentor and the love of my life, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and his volatile, impressionable apprentice, Anakin Skywalker. As Obi-Wan and the old guard of the Jedi ranks hunt down separatist defectors, Anakin is gradually seduced into darkness by his close friend, Chancellor Palpatine, himself secretly Darth Tyrannus, the Dark Lord of the Sith. Um, <laughs> I'm not done, sir. Sidious? Oh shit! You're right. Andrew, did I did I did I give him Dooku's name? You got it name? wrong. Yeah. Uh, Let me do Duke it again. I'm so sorry to to be that guy. I just... you know what? No, I say leave this in because <laughs> I, I'm a person who like lives and grows, and I made a mistake. Let me take the sentence again, and uh, I'll say it right. I was saying, it and I was like, hmm, but I don't remember. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As Obi-Wan and the Old Guard of the Jedi ranks hunt down separatist defectors, Anakin is gradually seduced into darkness by his close friend, Chancellor Palpatine, himself secretly Darth Sidious, the Dark Lord of the <laughs> Sith. The novelization of Revenge of the Sith was written by Matthew Stover, based on the story and screenplay by George Lucas. It was published by Lucasfilm and Del Rey in 2005. Who is Matthew Stover? Matthew Woodring Stover is an American science fiction and fantasy author. He is primarily known for his Star Wars novels, including Traitor, Shatterpoint, and Luke Skywalker and the Shadows of Mindor. Now, I have not read any of these, but Traitor is apparently a mostly original story that involves, according to the Wikipedia page, zero established Star Wars characters, which seems incredibly impressive to me. Uh, Shatterpoint is a... Uh, Mace Windu specific book that is all about sort of how he came up as a Jedi and some of the uh, combat styles and his relationship with the Force like that he developed over the years, which I think really bleeds through in this novel because uh, Stover seems very obsessed with uh, Windu's is would you say martial arts or lightsaber duel style of Vapad. Um, Stover also has books that are not related to the Star Wars mythology. Uh, he's authored a sci-fi fantasy series called The Axe of Cain, which is an entirely original IP and so far comprises five books. He published the most recent entry to it in 2012. 
and it seems like maybe he's in retirement. He hasn't uh, written anything since 2012. Uh, according to the blurb from the end of this novel, he is a master in several different martial arts. Uh, our guest today is filmmaker Patrick Willems. I wanted to sort of open up uh, this episode by asking uh, Patrick and also, you know, each of us maybe can go around and say, forget about this novel for a second. What is your relationship to the movie Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith? Uh, well, first of all, pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, but, okay, my relationship with Revenge of the Sith. That's a big question. Um, it is a movie that I saw multiple times in theaters when I was in high school, when it came out. Uh, that I think, like all of the prequels at the time, I convinced myself I liked uh, and then over time, I realized I wasn't crazy about it. And then the more time went on, for a long time, it, it was just my straight-up least favorite Star Wars movie until The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, and uh, so I'm not a huge fan of Revenge of the Sith, the movie. I do like Star Wars a lot. and uh, But my thoughts about the movie are kind of my general thoughts about the prequels in general, which is, I think, and we'll get into it when we talk about the book, I think on paper there is a very compelling story that is being told. Just in the movies, it's not being told especially well. So that's that's kind of me in Revenge of the Sith. A a absolutely. Uh, before we jump into the book, Hannah and Andrew, what do you what do you think of the movie Revenge of the Sith? Um, I am a noted prequels apologist. <laughs> um, so, like, I like Revenge of the Sith. And at this point, it's my favorite of the prequels. It's, I probably, maybe because I read this book, like, six years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, that's it. So, like, when I watch the movie, there's all this, like, richness and depth behind the scenes that I, I also have no problem, like, creating whole cloth when I watch a movie anyway. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I saw Revenge of the Sith in high school when it came out, and I remember my friends and I being like, that was stupid, and we made fun of it. But deep in my heart, I was like, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it is um, about best friends breaking up, which is my like, number one genre piece. Like, I love that more than anything. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I do think the prequels are full of promise that is not a grant, not perfectly executed, but the promise and the concepts are enough for me to be like fast. I, uh, I, I've been working on a story for a while that is like very centered around friendship. And I, I, I pitched the idea to former guests of the podcast, John Goodman at one point, And he said to me, he was like, you know, I just feel like not enough cinema is about how hard friendships are. <laughs> Andrew, what about you? Oh, sure. I mean, I must have seen Revenge of the Sith four or five times in the theater back in 2005. Uh, but I don't think I'd seen really any of the prequels in full since. I feel like my relationship to them since then has been mostly film criticism and even like the Plinkett reviews and things like I know parts of them really well because they're what we criticize and what we talk about a lot, but this was my first real interaction with the prequels in a long time, so I was happy for it because it was actually, I think as Patrick says, or and Hannah says as well, 
it's a compelling story in the films that's not being told super well. And this book kind of made me kind of reconsider how compelling it is. I'm very interested in this metric we're using of like, I saw the film X amount of times, because I also probably saw this four times. But I remember there was an Onion article when The Force Awakens came out that was something along the lines of, man sees movie he absolutely hates five times in theaters. Which is is funny, but it also makes a really valid point, which is that when your fandom goes deep enough into your veins, the amount that you watch something stops correlating to your feelings about it. Um, Okay, so we can move away from the film now. And, you know, what'd you guys think of this book? I'm just going to go on the record... I thought it absolutely kicked ass. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's a great book, like on its own. It's like really moving. It's exciting. It um, like touched my heart. Uh, and again, like I read it six years ago and I still like have passages that I'm like, I think about that a lot. And I'm always like, you should read Revenge of the Sith. It's so good. Like I'm constantly... <laughs> pitching it to people. I I mean, I can uh, attest to that because I think two years ago, Hannah started pushing this book on me and being like, (laughs) you know, uh, I I, I will say actually, like my first, my awareness of this novelization began, I think it was maybe like five or six years ago. I remember it might've been 2015 around when Force Awakens was coming out. Uh, there was this very long article on Slash Film that was about how the novelization of Revenge of the Sith is one of the best Star Wars stories. And it like went into detail about like all the stuff that's like added in the novelization that isn't really in the movie and like all this characterization that's not really in the movie. And I was like, that's that was where I, I was like, oh huh. That's interesting. May I don't know if I'll ever read it, but that's interesting. And then two years ago, uh, you know, Hannah started telling me, it rules. You should read it. Here is my copy if you ever want to borrow it. And then finally, two years after that, <laughs> Hannah forced me into being on her podcast, and so I had to actually read the book. And uh, But, like, it, it, it is good. It is, uh, I will say, I, I, I'm sure I'll say this repeatedly throughout uh the episode but like what i would do occasionally i'd like finish like a like a big section like a like you know i'd hit like a major dramatic beat and then i'd be like that isn't quite how i remembered that being in the movie like like, i i I don't remember this being as powerful in the film and then i would pull it because i i have like uh like the movie ripped as like an mp4 file like on my on a hard drive it's why it's like i pulled out the movie file and I, and I like would re-watch little sections of it and be like oh okay the same basic things are happening in the story but there is uh there is none of of the depth or subtext or characterization or emotion that is there on the page it is just people bluntly delivering lines that are just that have nothing else to them beyond what what they are, and it moves through it so quickly. And I was so shocked that in the movie, uh, the moment where like you know Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth, he like you know is like anointed Darth Vader. That happens like straight up at the midpoint of the movie, 
and it happens like at least more than two thirds of the way through the book. There is so much more time spent building up to that, and then in the movie, it, it feels so rushed and and kind of unearned, in my opinion. It- In general, the way that they weighted the different parts, or the way that Matthew Stover weighted the different parts of the story really surprised me. Like, the fact that everything with Dooku, which I remember being this, like, throwaway at the beginning of the movie, is 120 pages of we gotta get Dooku, now we got him, what do we do? Oh no, I cut his head off scissor style. (laughs) You know? It's... it's, (laughs) It's true, he chooses these things to just blow up into, let's go really nitty-gritty with what's going on here. Let's get really into the politics of, like, what does Dooku think of Grievous? What does Dooku think of his role in this trap set for the Jedi? Just, he, he blows that up into this whole world. And then, I would say at other points in the novel, is, like, shrinking things down or running through things. Saying, like, I'm not even gonna mention Kashyyyk. Because I have deemed that the Kashyyyk battle is unnecessary. Yeah, uh, Chewbacca is never mentioned in the book, right? And I mean, and the movie, you know, there's a point where, like, you, you know, Yoda says something about, like, goodbye, Chewbacca, my friend. Like, uh, it's like, they go so out of their way to be like us, oh, Chewbacca's in this movie. And, uh, and it's so, it, it's, it's unnecessary, and Matthew Stover recognized it was unnecessary and just didn't bother with it. I, I rewatched the movie last night, and when that line happened, when Yoda said, goodbye, Chewbacca, my friend, my partner, very confused, went, do they see each other in the original trilogy? And I said, no. <laughs> but they were thinking of each other throughout the original trilogy. Absolutely. That's like sure every so often, I, you know, they're just thinking like, I wonder, I wonder what my friend is up to. I hope he's okay. I'm sure when Luke came back and was like, I was training with this dude, Yoda, Chewbacca was like, whoa, my friend, thought he was dead. Yeah, I'm sure if George had kept control of Star Wars, we would have had more special editions that added those changes into the original trilogy. That is completely true. Yes, I I believe that. uh, One thing I did find interesting is, uh, so stuff like that is cut out of... The novelization because it's not really necessary. Uh, you know, nothing on Kashyyyk is very important. Um, but they did include in the novelization what was a deleted scene from the movie. Which is, which the, is that? Uh, uh, the uh, the Qui Gon uh, appearance with Yoda at the end. That's like there's a deleted scene where like Liam Neeson came back in and uh, you know recorded stuff, and um, it's not in there, but it's in the book. I mean, it's part of the, like, emotional, thematic through line, so it should be there. You know, like, Wookiee is not thematically relevant. I actually disagree. I I think (laughs) the more Force ghosts I get and the more... uh, the more mobility and the more abilities that the Force ghosts have, it makes me really feel like they aren't dead and gone, and it takes some of the punch of their deaths away from me. Which is one of my main complaints about, of many, uh, about the rise of Skywalker, is that the one way they use Luke, instead of it being a cool, like, turn off your targeting computer way, is to have him strolling around, going, hey, what's up, the that Kylo guy is crazy, right? (laughs) 
and it made me less sad that he was dead. And I felt that a little bit with Qui-Gon. I, I can't simultaneously feel this man is mourning his master while this man is speaking with his master. I think it's important to note that canonically, and someone correct me if I'm missing an extended universe situation, but like Qui-Gon is like the first force ghost. Yes. Like he's the guy who learns how to do it once he's dead. Yep. And then Yoda's like, fascinating. We should probably learn how to do this so the Jedi don't totally disappear. This Um, is noteworthy. (laughs) I mean, the whole force ghost thing is interesting because... I mean, as much as, Andrew, you say it does, like, take some some impact away from the deaths if they can just kind of hang out, in Return of the Jedi, right there in the original trilogy, Ghost Obi-Wan just sits down on a log next to Luke and tells him a long story. Like, it, it was happening, like, right away. Even in the first movie, he doesn't appear as a ghost, but his, like, he talks to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, like, and th- th- this is... The, the line that I do, I've always thought about is, uh, is there's the point in the first movie uh, when Obi-Wan and Anakin, best friends, meet each other again for the first time in decades. And Obi-Wan says, if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And then he doesn't seem to become very powerful uh, after that. He's, like, kind of useful. But he's not very... And I've always wondered, and, uh, and this was, like... You know, for me, one like uh, the a thing that I really enjoyed about the scene in the Last Jedi where Yoda like does some a little the little lightning bolt, and I was like, ah, okay, that's like, you know, that that now it kind of makes a bit more sense, like that they can you know potentially do some things like this, but also the, the rules have never been set in stone about like how often they can show up and uh can they just be there all the time i don't know force ghost i mean maybe when he says i'll be more powerful than ever before he means like i'm about to haunt your ass every single second of every single day are there deleted scenes of that as well (laughs) where he's just walking around like a star destroyer and uh, darth vader's like looking back over his shoulder all the time that'd be fun stop hassling me It's interesting you say that, Patrick, because I feel like this novelization almost implies there at the end when Yoda realizes that they can be Force ghosts and be around forever, that that is the way that they can conquer death that they keep talking about throughout the novel. That's Anakin's whole, you know, motivation for becoming a Sith. And Yoda's like, oh, conquering death. Qui-Gon did it. Stupid Anakin. Uh, poor Annie. Uh, he... Yeah, I, I it that's a really good point, and uh, because yeah, it, it, that's a thing that's also not really in the movie. The fact that they figure, I mean, like that they can't like live forever, but they can they like the the Jedi find a way to kind of like exist forever or like exist beyond regular life, which is not what Anakin was looking for, but it's still a pretty cool thing. But it's like the ways, the number of ways this improves upon the story of the movie is like is it's so interesting to me like like uh andrew you mentioned that how the opening like dooku battle stuff is like 120 pages and i think what's what's interesting about that section is so much of it it's not just like they're battling for a really long time like they go like one by one through the characters and like okay let's just tell you everything about 
what this character's deal is, what they want, what they've been through, like who just just like you you understand them completely. And in the movie, you know, at the beginning of when there's that opening action scene, it's like, well, I know that Anakin is very confident and kind of arrogant, and Obi-Wan Kenobi doesn't like flying. And that's pretty much it. That's like their their thing that they establish in the movie. The but there's comedy, so much more here. The comedy in the opening of the movie is goofy in like a way that I think kind of detracts from it. Where it's like, isn't this a life or death situation? But they go so in depth on the relationship between Obi Wan and Anakin in the book that when they make jokes, it to me presented as evidence of their bond. Even though they were the same jokes I detested in the movie. It even feels that Obi-Wan, like, there's a point after Anakin's sort of gone over the deep end where he wants to make a joke. And he's like, oh, I could have made that joke if Anakin was still around, but, you know, he's not. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, one thing I found fascinating is also just, like, the way it builds up to the arrival of Anakin and Obi-Wan at the beginning, where it, like... It, like, talks about, like, how, like, the legend of these two guys has spread throughout the galaxy because everyone is watching the Hollow Net, which is a, a big thing that, that they bring up a lot that I don't think has ever been mentioned in the movies. No. But, uh, but like, they talk about, like, like, Kenobi and Skywalker. These are, like, the names. And, like, because, again, in when the movie starts out, I'm... And, okay, Andrew, you watched it last night, so correct mm. me if I'm wrong... I don't think it's entirely clear how much time has passed in between films. Not at all. But, like, in the book, it's clear that this has been years, and they have gone on... They have... I mean, basically, you know, the whole Clone Wars cartoon happened in between, and they had so many adventures, went on so many missions, and so, like, this is now, like, this is their job, and this is the kind of thing they do all the time, and so, like, their arrival just has more impact while in the movie it's just kind of like well another day cool De- guess we're gonna guess we're gonna fly into a battle and uh, rescue the chancellor definitely and like in the movie you might have just watched episode two which has a lot of really dark anakin stuff like him killing you know the sand people and i think they want us to believe in episode three that there have been years and years of good times with Anakin and Obi-Wan. But if you just watch the movies as a trilogy, you're thinking things are already very, very fraught on the Anakin front. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, poor Anakin. Like, all he needs is, like, one human being to be like, I love you. It's fine. Like, take a breather. Mm -hmm. Who isn't Padme? Like, Padme's love is great, but it's not enough for him. Like, he needs parents. He needs, like, a mentorship system. Like, I think if one time Obi-Wan Kenobi was like, hey, man, I love you. I'm here for you. Don't freak out. We'd be fine. (laughs) There would be none of this, like, what if I turn to the dark side? You know, if, like, any person was like, you know, you can talk to me, right? Like, we'd be fine. The only time he says it, right, is Padme goes, you love him, don't you? And he's like, uh, yeah. He's like, I gotta get out of here. (laughs) Which is a great moment. It is. Yes. One of the ones I think about all the time, because um, just to, like, here's me now on my soapbox. Um, As I mentioned, Obi-Wan Kenobi is like my number one Star Wars character. I love him more than anything. Mm -hmm. He's just like the saddest man in the world. 
He is a creature of infinite tragedy. Like nothing good ever happens to him and everything is always literally his fault. Um, and he like finds this kid, raises him, loves him so much. And then Anakin is like, well, I'm the most evil thing in the universe. You know, like the Jedi Order, which we all know is bad, <laughs> has like crippled both of them emotionally so much that like, Literally, if they could just talk to each other about their feelings, um, things would be so much better. And like Obi-Wan Kenobi, just like a sad, like sand wizard who's like, yeah, I once was in love, but I fucked it up so unbelievably bad. <laughs> like, it, it just like it's the, this upcoming Kenobi show, um, which I'm like, I've been waiting so desperately for for 15 years. <laughs> You know, if it's not Ewan McGregor being sad in the desert and people are like, hey, do you want to come to dinner? And he's like, I don't deserve dinner. You know, like, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, and this book gives me, like, oh, all the good stuff. All the, like, he's like, boy, I wish I could comprehend the feeling that I'm feeling, which is love. Boy, when Padme asks me, you love him, right? I wish I could say, yeah, of course, but I'm physically incapable due to my Jedi upbringing, well, which does, is devastating. He does say, I loved you to Anakin right when he leaves, when Anakin is like burning to death. It's crushing. Uh, it's crushing. It's, it's past tense. Love. It is so sad. And I feel that in the movie, but like it is so much richer because of what you guys were saying, like, you really get a sense that they, like, are one unit and they operate, like, in tandem and they don't know how to exist mm -hmm. without each other. And then they are forced to due to unbelievable tragedy. And, and then also, like, because the book establishes the relationship between them so well, the part when they split off, when Obi-Wan goes to Utapau... Uh, to go after General Grievous, there's like weight to it when you're you're realizing like, oh no, the, if it maybe if he didn't have to leave, he could be there to like stop what's gonna happen, but he's not, and so like you you can there is like this actually feels like a tragedy, uh, in the way that I think the movie wants to, but doesn't get. Also, I think one thing that's very helpful is uh the book cuts out almost all of the worst lines of dialogue from the movie <laughs> which I think is uh, a really good move mm -hmm. um, it, ke it keeps the important ones like it keeps the you were the chosen one you know you were supposed to line. destroy you destroy yeah I, I mean I, I have complicated feelings about the whole chosen one thing which I'll I would love to talk point. about that I have questions about it yeah, I've uh, I, this has it's a thing that has driven me nuts about Star Wars for years. But uh, but like that that final thing, like the, the the single best moment of acting in the movie when Ewan McGregor does like the monologue, that's intact in the book because it's good. But then other stuff, uh, you know, like Anakin, hold you're me, breaking hold my me heart. like you did, like <laughs> on the lake by under boot, right? That's not in the book. Yeah, some of the. <laughs> right. But like, there is no. It's over, Anakin. I have the high ground. He doesn't say that in the book. Also, that moment in the book is like it was an accident, <laughs> which I think is like after a whole book of like, well, if there's one person in the world that Obi Wan like could not sacrifice, it's Anakin. Mm -hmm. If there's like one thing he couldn't do, it's hurt Anakin. But then when he cuts off all his limbs, which in the movie feels like really fucking mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the book is like, 
I misjudged where he was going and I fucked up and I accidentally cut off all his limbs. I feel bad. The way it happens, I think, is so effective because, well, so earlier there is just a, a really fucked up piece of just dialogue where Obi-Wan's talking to Yoda and uh, Obi-Wan's like, you know, Yoda, um, I would absolutely sacrifice your life if meant this war could end one day earlier. And Yoda's like, it's cool. I would sacrifice your life too. <laughs> and I'm like, what is, what is with these people? This is so weird. And then there's this point, point like during the big Anakin Obi-Wan duel when, you know, uh, it's talking about how like Obi-Wan, like he's, they're supposed to let go of it, all attachments as Jedi, but, but he he did have an attachment to Anakin, and then he, then there's like this moment where he's like, and then he let he let it go, he uh, he let go of this one attachment that he had, and that's when he chops his limbs off. I I really want to talk about the letting go of things because I found it to be really screwed up too. It's like the thing about the Jedi that is most disturbing, and is like from an objective point of view, like obviously that's the wrong way to raise children like be a community, uh, yeah. be like good in the universe to be like, we love nothing and we care about nothing. That's fucked up. What are you talking about? It's totally cool to like kidnap children, uh, <laughs> rate, like in, indoctrinate them into a religion basically from like infanthood and never let them form any attachments to anything. That's great. Obviously, like everyone would turn out really well that way. There's a scene early on, maybe not early on, but 200 pages in, where um, Yoda is prodding Anakin about the visions he's having. And Anakin goes, they're of pain, they're of suffering, they're, they're about someone close to me. And Yoda goes, the fear of loss is a path to the dark side. Uh, Anakin goes, I won't let my visions come true. And then Yoda goes... Rejoice for those who transform into the Force, mourn them not, miss them not. And then Anakin correctly says, <laughs> then why do we fight at all, Master? Why save anybody? And Yoda says, speaking of anybody, we are not. Speaking of you and your vision and your fear, we are. And I'm listening to this on audiobook, like bombing through the suburbs of Chicago on my bike. <laughs> And I just fully hit the brakes. And I, and I was like, he is deflecting. That is a terrific question. Because he essentially says, Yoda, he essentially says, death is okay. And yeah, okay, we try to prevent it. But really, if it happens, it's NBD. And then when Anakin presses him on it, he goes, you know what? We're not talking about, let's just focus on you right now. And it might be forgivable if it didn't come back five or six times in the book. The Jedi talking about, we cannot have attachments, we must let things go. And they even say at one point, mourning in any capacity, like mourning loved ones, is attachment and is a path to the dark side. It's very disquieting. I mean, the, the whole prequel thing is that the Jedi have lost their perspective, right? Mm -hmm. They can no they can't sense the Sith. They have no they've like gotten too far into their own concepts and it destroys them. And then when Luke like redoes the Jedi, it's much more loving and embracing and like really open to the force, which is love. Like the forces well, our connection be, is being but then right? the school doesn't go so well. Okay, well ignoring that, you know, like conceptually, like at the end of Return of the Jedi, it feels like Luke's like, okay, I know what the Jedi thing can be and it's like loving your dad and saving his soul. 
like great <laughs> right I don't mean this in like a let's ignore bad movies way, but I think there is value to ignoring the sequel trilogy because everything spoken about as like an end game in the first six movies only pertains to the first six movies. So if we're yeah. talking about like the prophecy, the chosen one, balance coming to the force, that's all Return of the Jedi shit. So it feels odd to invoke I'm not I'm not angry with you. <laughs> it feels like maybe maybe we can't invoke something from like the last Jedi as pertaining to the prophecy. Does that make sense? It does to me. It does. I mean yeah, I mean at this point simply bringing up the sequel trilogy is a whole can of worms to yeah. open up. I will say the last thing I'll say about it is um, one thing that I appreciated about where things seemed like they had left off in The Last Jedi is that they had recognized, you know what, the old Jedi ways were kind of dumb and mm -hmm. led to bad stuff. And maybe the path forward is to find, like, a better, you know, way, like, like healthier way to, like, practice this religion and stuff like that that does not involve the, like, bizarre dogma that like doomed us all years ago and then then the, the, the following movie didn't really like follow through on that but um anyway uh i what i would love to talk about is the prophecy and the chosen one because it comes up a lot in this book and do you think you can explain what the prophecy is uh y yeah kind of um because it, th th it's a thing it it is maybe my single biggest problem with this book and it's just like it's not like it it, it had to be in there it, it is not matthew stover's fault it because it was there in in all of the prequels george lucas was very you know big on like there is a prophecy anakin is the chosen one it's part of the story um and so it's not yeah it, it's not a flaw of the book it had to be there but i i i mean Again, there's been plenty of discussion about, you know, the tr the chosen one trope in fiction and how it's often, like, you know, played out or unhealthy or, just, like, there's a lot of dumb things about it. And, um, but in Star Wars, I genuinely think introducing the notion of a prophecy and a chosen one kind of did, to some extent, like, irreparable damage to Star Wars. And I think it's really unnecessary because like in like phantom menace i uh, they just very quickly just like i feel like late in the movie just suddenly start talking about like oh you think he could be the chosen one the prophesized one who will uh, bring balance to the force and they just start talking about the prophecy as if every as if like it's a thing that we all know about which i which we don't like uh, anytime i've rewatched those movies i'm always thrown by just like the casual way they bring up the prophecy without they ever are a really religious like, order full of prophecies and magic yeah but it's like the prophecy and it was never mentioned in the original trilogy and like if you read on like wikipedia you know it does say there you know it, it goes into some detail about it but basically it just makes anakin into space jesus that is just what it See, is but like for me the prophecy is just like you know it's like saying, like, ah, yes, Jesus will return. It's a prophecy. It's a thought 
you know, and when they place it on Anakin, whether he is that or not, or the prophecy is anything, it's an amount of pressure on him that he can't bear and they don't help him with it. They just say like, well, you have to be perfect because you're the chosen one. And he's like, but I'm struggling, you know? And so like all of that, like prophecy, non-prophecy, like does he bring balance to the force? Yes. But you know, like just because they don't know how to read the prophecy. Like, I think you can tell this exact same story if it's just he is, like, the most promising, most talented, like, like the, the bright shining star of the Jedi Order, and then he has this fall. Like, having this, this like, this prophecy where he, I mean, again, what's also strange about it is he, if he is the chosen one, uh, which they just, you know, they... I feel like they should be treating him differently if he is like the chosen one instead of just constantly like shut like you know just you know shoving him off to the side or stuff like that or just like kind of like you know like like I don't know like I don't know exactly what they should do with him but it's just like I don't know why we need a space Jesus in this whole thing and it also started this whole annoying thing with bloodlines and lineage throughout mm-hmm. all of Star Wars that has become a massive problem in I think in in the stories and also kind of fucked up like the fandom in a lot of ways as well. I, I just if you took all of the chosen one stuff out of all of Star Wars, I think it would improve it. It's so it's so deeply fucked up that a movie designed seemingly specifically to get rid of the bloodline stuff didn't work. <laughs> we said we weren't going to talk about those anymore. I, I think Patrick was the only one who vowed to not speak of them again. I, I think I have free reign. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do agree with you. I think it's unnecessary. I think it's like a complication that like is probably not needed. But I do want to say, if we think like in Phantom Menace, Qui Gon, who is himself a rebel Jedi, right? Like he's a cool guy. He believes in love. He's like a hippie, right? When he shows up with Anakin and he's like, "I think this kid is the chosen one," everyone else is like, "No, come on, no." Right. So there, and then at the end, Obi Wan says like, "Either you guys help me train him, or I'm gonna go do this on my own. I'm gonna leave the order and train this kid by myself." And they say, "Okay, okay, okay, don't do that." So, like, whether they actually believe he's the chosen one, I have big questions about all the way through. Even that they're like, we're not going to make you a Jedi Master, because shut the fuck up. And he's like, but I'm the chosen one, right? And they're like, yeah. This book did make me side with Anakin in that disagreement. <laughs> I was very pissed yeah. off at Obi-Wan Kenobi. I know. <laughs> and he really successfully like isolates Anakin from everyone else. Like I do feel like the book makes it very clear that when they separate Anakin and Obi-Wan, it's because Palpatine knows like that they like if they were together, he couldn't win over Anakin. And so they have to be separated. There's they more strings being apart. pulled in the book that you can see. And it and, and like you look at it and you're like, that's, that's a pretty good plan. Like, also, especially doing, you know, things like, oh, having, 
uh, like Obi-Wan get rid of General Grievous and wrap that up. And then when he kills General Grievous, he is then in a trap because all of the clones are there when he institutes Order 66. Like, that's all good. Also, can I just say, I uh, really appreciated that uh, General Grievous is not just asthmatic Dracula uh, in this. I think that uh, is a huge improvement because I think that character sucks in the movie and is much Grievous is another thing that is conceptually amazing and in the movies like doesn't pay off like he is Anakin 1.0 like he's Darth Vader version 1 he's an, a living being that was turned into a robot after he like had a horrible thing happen to him and he lost his family and he's now like a vengeful mean beast uh, and like conce- I'm like that rules uh, and in the movie you get like zero percent like you really have to work to pull that stuff apart and be like oh he does have organic bits that's interesting yeah I mean Grievous is cool in the uh, in the Gendy Tartakovsky Clone Wars cartoons uh, he's cool because they're like three minutes long and it's just like oh he's a robot monster who <laughs> kills Jedi and that's it um, but yeah, when he shows up in the movie and he's like hunched over and coughing and suddenly, you know, it's just like, Kenobi. It's, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, I think he's silly. I'm still not totally sold on Grievous, even after reading the book. I agree he's better in the book, but Grievous has always struck me as like something that would show up in a fan fiction. Just the specifics of an alien with a droid exoskeleton. And the thing that feels really fanfic-esque is he carries the lightsabers of Jedis he has slain and uses them to fight, which feels like this writing 101 idea of what, how do I make someone intimidating? And when you think about it, it doesn't make sense that some alien would have the skills to defeat Jedi. That's never justified in the movie or the book. So that has always bothered me. Um, I wanted to go back to the idea of the Jedi trap, which is one of my favorite things from the book. It's one of these elements that is present in the movie, but you can completely miss it because it's not addressed in any way, shape, or form. So for any listeners that have not read this novelization, it is explained essentially that Palpatine revealing where Grievous is and claiming that it's clone intelligence is specifically a way to get Obi-Wan to go fight Grievous. The idea being that no matter what happens, even if Obi-Wan wins, which you would think would be bad, it's actually still a victory because it gives Palpatine the time to seduce Anakin because that seduction can't occur with Obi-Wan present. Uh, Which is... In the movie, sort of, in that that chain of events happens, but it's never said so clearly. And when Stover lays it out as this, you know, lose-lose scenario for Obi-Wan, it, I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it, it, it is really effective. And that whole, I mean, I feel like... I know that, like, it, 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 we have to compare the book to the movie... But I feel like, like I'm just a broken record. I was just being like, well, yeah, the, I didn't like this thing in the movie, but I did like it in the mm-hmm. book. But also, like, I mean, th- this is kind of such an obvious observation. But um, I, one of my problems with this movie is I think it's unpleasant to look at. Mm. Uh, I think it is uh, pretty ugly. And, um, and I just prefer reading about, like, Utapau 
to just like watching just like just like this an endless mishmash of of cgi just like mm-hmm. hitting each other or ewan mcgregor standing on a green screen swinging his lightsaber around at things that aren't there and then <laughs> just added a bunch of droids breaking uh, i'm just like it's yeah it, it's a lot more exciting uh when when you have it happen here i will say um one okay actually there's a bunch of things i want to bring up oh uh, uh, wait as far as the trap goes uh how did everyone feel about the order 66 sequence in the book because that's one of the more noteworthy parts in the movie just because mm-hmm. it's you know in, in general i think the best stuff in the movie is when people aren't talking uh, uh okay in my opinion there are three good scenes in the movie um there is uh the uh you know anakin you are my brother i loved you uh there's the tragedy of darth plagueis the wise and um and then there is the sequence which is entirely wordless where anakin and padme are just in opposite like buildings across coruscant and are just thinking about each other mm-hmm. and it's just like nice visuals and john williams really like you know carrying it and uh and that's what's good there and but then like order 66 is also one of like you know the more noteworthy ones it's the big sad part where everyone dies and uh and the thing that i always wondered about especially like i think last year i finally started watching the clone wars cartoon and in that like anakin and obi-wan are so like buddy buddy with the Mm -hmm. clones and commander cody and every they're they're friends they like they, they go on missions together and uh and especially after seeing that i did always think like Okay, so like the clones really seem to be like functioning, thoughtful humans, and they just instantly get in order as if they are like droids and and are just like immediately just gonna wipe out their friends like that fast. And even in the book, like you know, that said, like they hadn't made the Clone Wars cartoon by then. Commander Cody is not much of a character in this book, but it does like I I was wondering about the the psychology of the clones because it is so so sudden how he and obi-wan are having friendly dialogue and then like half a page later he's like unloading on him to to just take him out i don't know how did everyone feel about that my understanding was always that the clones have like a genetic trick like switch built in that like they like there's i'm flipping through my notes now And there's, like, all this talk about, like, the whole Clone Wars are a trap for the Jedi. Like, the clones themselves are a trap for the Jedi. Like, this entire thing has been leading to a way to slaughter the Jedi. Um, And getting the clones that are built to do this is the way to do it. Well, we can't forget that the, the clone army was ordered... By Jedi yeah, Master you're Saifo. obsessed with this. I, yeah. I, so, Patrick, I only just researched this. I have spent my entire life since episode two came out, thinking Sifo-Dyas is a villain, but he's not. Well, <laughs> here's the th- okay. Did anyone else have this? And uh, Hannah, I apologize. I know I've I've yelled at you about this. I, not yelled at you. I've just, I've just monologued at you about this before. Um, this is something Patrick cares about, and I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know what? Hannah, you love Obi-Wan Kenobi more than anyone else in the world. And um, and I am, like, just ups- more upset about Sifo Diaz than anyone else in the world. Um, 
So I'm not even upset. Okay. I remember seeing Attack of the Clones in theaters. And uh, and there's the part when, you know, Obi-Wan goes to uh, Kamino and they're like, oh, yes, Jedi Master Sifo Diaz ordered this clone army. And it's like, whoa. We, we don't know about Sifo Diaz, but it's got, that's a cool name. And he ordered a, a clone army years ago. <laughs> he must be important. He must be a character in the story. And then also, uh, Dooku, who we have not, all, have also not heard about before. My thought was that Dooku would turn out to be Sifo Diaz. Mm-hmm. Like, he's set up, and then you pay it off there, because Dooku you know, had been a Jedi before, mm-hmm. and then that's just not the case. Uh, uh, because he's they, Darth Sidious. Tyrannus. No, I, I'm, I'm intentionally... Oh. I'm intentionally <laughs> boggling it. <laughs> but, and then the bizarre thing, like, I remember, like, years later, just, like, researching, like, reading about it online, just being like, what is up with Sifo Diaz? He's just a name that is just mentioned a couple times. Like, why did he order a clone army? It's, the movies never tell you why. And basically, like, I, I learned that he was a Jedi who had, like, a power of, like, foresight. He could see the future. And he saw that there was going to be a conflict and and warned the other Jedi and we're like, hey guys, there's going to be a thing. We, I think we need some kind of like army to deal with this future conflict. And they were like, no, we don't think so. <laughs> and he went and then he just went and ordered this army on his own. And then, you know, Sidious behind the scenes had an assassin kill him. Mm-hmm. And this is it. And I'm just like, this is, I think, one of the ultimate examples of what I assume was... Uh, Maybe George get writing Attack of the Clones being like, oh, man, I got a, we need a clone army. I don't, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe a guy who just, in just at some point in the past uh, ordered it and we, uh, you know, we, we, we'll just kind of like skim over that. And then the people like, you know, like Filoni and crew, like making the cartoons were like, okay, I guess we got to, we got to explain that. We got to find a, an answer to this thing that has just like, cause I see there, there's probably like, I don't know, 10 people like me who were annoyed about this for years. I wrote down when I read the Sifo story yesterday, I wrote down that it's one of the greatest arguments for red tape and bureaucracy <laughs> that, I've, that I've ever heard because his mistake was proceeding without oversight. <laughs> Um, I was just going to say that must also suggest that once the Sith were involved, they were able to like reprogram the clones somehow, like that they had access to the genetic code or something. Well, this is the weird thing. Like, I don't because like, for instance, there is there's at least one episode of the Clone Wars, which for most of it, George Lucas was like overseeing and like directing Mm -hmm. them like these are the stories. But there's like at least one episode about some clones who like just deserted and like went off on their own and like started families and stuff like that. And clearly they didn't have like a coding that like meant they couldn't like refuse orders because they did like i don't think there's anything in there about them being genetically coded to being like well they can be normal human beings but also they have to accept and and follow any order they're given like it's mm-hmm. i don't know maybe they're just really really good soldiers so even if they'll they'll be your buddy as soon as they get they get the word they will kill you i thought that the i guess oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry i was just gonna say i thought that the little bit of interiority they gave to Cody where he was like 
I wish I hadn't given the lightsaber back to him before Order 66 came in. I thought that was one of the only, maybe, mistakes Stover made in the book. Because it makes way more sense if something just flips in his brain, as I think Hannah said, and they suddenly go into kill mode, than it does for him to consciously go, well, you know, I, I love Order 66, so I gotta do it. It That just raises so many questions. Uh, we had a, um, a joke, uh, my, my friend in college and I, that when the Jedi were like reading over the, the clone orders and what you could get them to do, it was like, Order 65, like, you know, uh, attack enemy base. Order 66, none. Order 67, <laughs> and then it was like, Order 67, burn all Jedi robes. Order, <laughs> order 68, dispose of all green and blue lightsabers. <laughs> That's really good. And also now makes me think, did any clones just pick up all those lightsabers that fell on the ground? (laughs) Did anyone go like, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm just going to discreetly slip it into my pocket while no other clones are looking. And there's at least a crystal in this that's worth a lot. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, No, I was just going to say, essentially, I mean, I think like your joke is it that like Order 66 is special. And if you looked at the rule book, it would be none. (laughs) Um, That like, I don't think it's, I mean, like when I talk about like, I think they're programmed to do it. It's not that I think they're programmed to follow every order or do whatever. Like they're designed to be soldiers and some of soldiering is making decisions Mm -hmm. and saying, yes, that's a good idea. No, that's a bad idea. But Order 66, null, parentheses, kill all Jedi. (laughs) Feels like a sort of like a different thing because um, they sure do kill all them Jedi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if so- one clone was like, "No, no, no, this is fucked up. We're not killing all the Jedi," then we would have more Jedi. But we don't. Right. They fucking kill all the Jedi, right? And they and- think they successfully kill Obi Wan. Like they knock him off his lizard, and they're like, <laughs> "We did it. That'll do it." Yeah. <laughs> Also, the lizard gets so much in this book. Oh my god! Put some respect. Put some respect on her name, which is, of course, notes, notes, notes. Bogo, Bogo, Bogo. Bogo. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, she puts herself between laser blast and Obi Wan. She meets him for twenty minutes and is like, "I'm in love with him." Like she's me, but a lizard. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Also, isn't there the thing where Obi Wan is not entirely clear on what the gender is, but then is like. You're a girl. I just decided that now. Congrats. Yeah, well, th- th- this is the thing with I think w- with the clones, like uh, like Andrew, what you were saying about like that. It might have been a mistake to have that one little like line of like interiority where it's like if you read this book and put aside because like the Clone Wars cartoon hadn't been made yet. If you on this like in this book, they are pretty much like they might as well be battle droids. Mm-hmm. They are like. They do, they do not read, like, people with their own thoughts. And that one line kind of throws it all off. So it's like, so that's the thing. Like, I think if you hadn't had that, it would be much simpler to just be like, oh, the clones are just, like, brainwashed things that follow orders, and that's how it goes. Cool. You could have also maybe fixed it by doing it way more. Uh, if, if we had really gotten to know a few clones and then we saw them suddenly turn it would feel like something biologically has changed because I know that guy. He's chill. But instead, this one line is just very confusing on its own. 
I mean, the thing with Cody is that, like Patrick is saying, like if you watch the Clone Wars, he's like a major character. But if you just saw the movie, he's just a guy. And maybe he's like, I don't like Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's kind of a jerk to me. Like, he thinks he's better than me. He's like a general. And why? Like, you could be like, I mean, you could spin it. (laughs) Can I steer things in a different direction? Because there is one scene that stood out so much to me. And then I went back earlier today and rewatched the scene from the movie and was stunned by how different they are even though technically the same thing is happening. So in in the book, there's the part when uh, Palpatine slash Sidious kind of like reveals himself to Anakin and is like, hey, what's up? I've been the Sith Lord all this time. I'm, I have lied to you since you were a child. Um, I'm the person that you want to kill. I did all of this stuff. And Anakin has like a full-on nervous breakdown Mm -hmm. and he shows up to Mace Windu like barely able to stand up barely able to speak just like like he's his world has been like shattered and I he's he's like a complete wreck and he's like barely able to to like to stammer out like I think it's like like nine words or or, or like what he says it's like Palpatine is Sidious he is the, the the Sith Lord and that's what makes Mace Windu be like, okay, we 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 gotta fucking do this. We've gotta like, and and like it's like we even have like limited people here right now, but we have to do something. This is like the worst possible scenario. And in the movie, what happens is, <laughs> I, this scene made me so angry last night. <laughs> yeah, especially like after you read the book, which is so emotional, and like Anakin is like just falling, like utterly falling apart. In in the movie, um. Mace Windu and a few other Jedi are just like, yeah, we uh, we're gonna go tell uh, tell Palpatine that um, you know he uh, he can w- w- you know he he needs to like drop his like emergency powers uh, because uh, we we don't he doesn't need those anymore. It's 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 pretty much going to do like almost like a routine meeting, and then Anakin is like, by the way, I I think he I think he might be a Sith Lord. I uh I I I think he might be. He said some weird stuff to me and. I think he might be, and um, and Anakin's just totally chill about it, and he's just just like, yeah, just so you know, um, here's some information, and uh, Mace Windu says, "All right, Anakin, you stay here. We are going to go." And it's like, <laughs> no one has any emotion in their voice or are in their like, like, like no one is feeling anything. It's just like, here's some information. Thank you, Anakin. We are going to go. Uh, stop him now. I and would like that's to. It. I would like to add more bad stuff about that scene, which is go, that. Yes. <laughs> I think my read watching it last night is that Mace Windu is, like, kind of offended by the information. Instead of being there for Anakin, he's like, a Sith Lord? Buddy. He's a a Sith Lord. And then, finally, Anakin gets to cross, and he's like, okay. Like, he just... the, The Samuel L. Jackson performance is very exasperated, which I found wildly inappropriate... Well, to it's be not fair, like Anakin is always coming to them with like boy who cried wolf stuff. Like it, it does feel like that because again, Anakin's thing in the movies is mostly like just being whiny that they're not like because he, he's just like why don't you let me go on these missions? Why can't I be a master? It's like in in the in the book you get why his like his deep insecurities and like why he has like he's really upset about this stuff. In the movie, he just is kind of you know 
like a tr- like you know I, like he's on a little league team and is like really good at hitting and is like but coach why can't i hit every single time i'm the best one and that's kind of his vibe i like disagree with you a lot <laughs> i disagree as well but I, I wasn't gonna i know that my perspective is um skewed so i wasn't gonna say anything but i disagree big time <laughs> i don't know if this reference is gonna i'm work. just talking about the movie i'm not i know oh you're okay. you're not you're not speaking you're saying but didn't you say that you thought in the book he was really kind of out of his depth or did i get that backwards no sorry i may have misspoken there okay i was saying i find like in the book anakin's insecurities and why he is upset about things to be really well motivated and i really understand it mm-hmm. i think in in the movie it comes off as much shallower yeah oh definitely I mean, sure yeah. i also like i'm inherently sympathetic to him and i think hayden is doing his best so like for me to be like for me watching anakin in the movie i'm like i also like feel like the carryover of pain from like his childhood like even that line that everyone gives a real hard time, like, oh, I hate sand, it's so coarse, it gets everywhere. I'm like, I get where Anakin's coming from. His whole childhood in slavery was on a sand planet. Of course he fucking hates sand. Like, I, I'm with you, dude. Yeah, you should hate sand. So, like, for me, like, I, I personally, and this is a me problem, I understand this. Like, I'm much, I have a much easier time being like, I see where he's coming from. And I do think the Jedi Council is, like, really mean to him. And they don't explain themselves sufficiently. Totally. Like, I, get, I get where he's coming from, from the moment I saw this movie in 2005 to today. So first off, I just want to say, Hannah, I'm way dumber than you. Because when I was a teenager and I heard Anakin say, I hate sand, I was like, <laughs> he should like it. He's from it. <laughs> shouldn't he miss sand because it reminds him of home and his mom totally exactly i was oh, like he, he should be a sand freak um <laughs> no just speaking of like anakin not being or what is the distinction he's appointed to the council but he's not made a master is that correct so mm-hmm. the i and i will say this spoiler free but i have been re-watching Better Call Saul recently. And like the central tension of that show is like, is the main character, Jimmy McGill, destined to become this terrible, immoral lawyer that we know from Breaking Bad because that's who he is? Or does he become it because once he does a couple things wrong, no one is willing to believe that he will be a better person? And I was like feeling very Better Call Saul in this moment. I was like, Anakin wouldn't be a Sith Lord if you believed in him. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, exactly. I think it's there in the movie, but it's but the the failings of the Jedi Order are so much clearer in the book. Yeah. And 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 just how I mean I mean like we got into this with with like the, the Yoda scene earlier, but just like you know, they 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 did kind of bring this on themselves. Like, you know, Palpatine was really smart and uh, and evolved over time and changed his strategies and adapted to, like, the way society was changing. And, uh, and the Jedi just kept on doing the same thing they'd always been doing. And they, they, they just failed so spectacularly. And they, I'm not saying they deserve it, but, you know, it's like, 
It is their fault. It's it's kind of their fault. To talk about how smart Palpatine is, can there's the one scene in this book that changes the perspective and goes into like a written record of Palpatine's like office tapes is sort of ingenious because it's the scene you're talking about, Patrick, where they go to arrest Palpatine, which is so much more graphic. I mean, all the lightsaber murder in this is no one's getting stabbed in the chest. It's like no through one. the face, through the <laughs> ear, head off, horns off. They also didn't have to like shoot a scene with like 70 something Ian McDermott, like spinning. I mean, it's just, it. yeah, they, they had an easier, it's easier to write that stuff than to yes. shoot it. It's true. But so on page 348 for anyone looking, we switch perspectives for the first time to the written record of Palpatine's audio recordings in his office, his Nixon tapes, I guess. <laughs> and he's basically setting up his, because uh, when he goes before the Senate and says, oh, the Jedi, they tried to kill me. They tried to assassinate me. Trust me. The way in which this written record reads, you could trust Palpatine. Again, where I believe him. Because everything he sings, like, <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you trying to kill me? And they're not saying, we're not trying to kill you. They keep just yeah, going along with their plan. To kill him. I, I, I thought the audio mm-hmm. recorder was an interesting touch. And definitely, it's, it's interesting that Stover it wants to, like, introduce evidence that would make people believe Palpatine. The part that didn't work for me was when we see the scene play out for real. And we know the recorders in the desk. And I thought it was a little too mustache twirly when Palpatine went, when that's enough of that. And he shoved his lightsaber through the tape recorder. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to remember how you triggered this in me. Oh, uh, when we were talking about the Jedi not growing and not learning. So one of the things that has always bothered me about Revenge of the Sith is that why does Yoda leave the fight with Palpatine? He's not injured. He's not dead. He takes a big fall and he just runs off. And in the movie, it's like, it seems like a full-on retreat. But the passage in the book is kind of incredible because it it manages to capture one of the major themes. I'm going to see if I can find a good place to sort of jump into it. So Yoda, I think, is either falling or has just fallen during the fight in the the Senate arena. And uh, it says, In that lightning-speared tornado of feet and fists and blades and bashing machines, his vision finally pierced the darkness that clouded the Force. Finally, he saw the truth. This truth, that he, the Avatar of Light, supreme master of the Jedi Order, the fiercest, most implacable, most devastatingly powerful foe the darkness had ever known, just didn't have it. He'd never had it. He had lost before he started. He had lost before he was born. The Sith had changed. The Sith had grown, had adapted, had invested a thousand years intensive study into every aspect of not only the Forced, but Jedi lore itself in preparation for exactly this day. The Sith had remade themselves. They had become new. While the Jedi... The Jedi had spent that same millennium training to refight the last war. The new Sith could not be destroyed with a lightsaber. They could not be burned away by any torch of the Force. The brighter his light, the darker their shadow. How could one win a war against the Dark when war itself had become the Dark's own weapon? 
He knew at that instant that this insight held the hope of the galaxy. But if he fell here, that hope would die with him. So, that's not at all clear in the movie. That he has any revelation of any sort about anything. <laughs> I don't know. It's one of my favorite parts of the book, and I, I, I just felt like... What madness to include that sequence in the movie, but not convey any of Yoda's interiority. Well, I mean, the, I feel like this is kind of a, like a recurring thing throughout both this episode and and in the book, where there's sequ- there's passages in the book with a lot of interiority to the characters, and when mm-hmm. you watch it in the movie, a lot of it is just very surface level. It's like, you know, they are fighting. Yoda falls down. He decides to leave. It's uh, you don't get all of this stuff going <laughs> through his head. And I, I will say one, th- uh, I really liked the way the book described uh, Palpatine slash Sidious, like Tyrannus. fighting. Uh, <laughs> I but like the way he, it always described him as like a shadow, and apparently he's like moving so quickly. It's it's like mm-hmm. he can like barely be be seen. Uh, it seems when, like, you know, in, in the movie, obviously, it's, they are kind of awkwardly shot fight scenes where Ian McDermott is swinging a, a mm-hmm. stick around. And in the book, like, like it seems like, like he's, like, he almost is, like, barely in human form, it seems. Like, he's just, he, like, wipes out, like, all of these Jedi so quickly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, like, the way he, and the way it always describes him as as a shadow i was like the the, the closest th- i was trying to like visualize this and be like okay what would this actually look like and uh and this is i don't think exactly what it's meant but i was like it's almost describing him more like uh if you remember the way um the death eaters move in the harry potter movies as these kind of like black cloud things mm-hmm. it, it 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 it's described a lot more like that than what is actually in the movie. And it, it makes him seem like a genuine, like, physical threat, not just, a, you know, a, a strategic and intellectual threat, but, like, genuinely, like, he could wipe out pretty much any of the Jedi. And he's, mm-hmm. like, he, he's, he's kind of, like, frightening in a way that uh, I had not thought of him before. Right, because his role, for the most part, in the movies is is purely political until he does this... I mean, every, you can see it coming 10 miles away, but until he does this 180, and then... Wait, can I actually ask a question to everybody? Yes. So, I'm assuming that when we all watched this movie when it came out... I, I mean, like, most... It, this is the thing I've always wondered about, because... In the original trilogy, they never say the word Palpatine. They only call him the Emperor. Mm-hmm. The name Palpatine was added in, like, a book, I think, in the 80s at some point. Mm-hmm. But then, if you were, like, a person who read about Star Wars stuff, you knew, you know, in, like, The Phantom Menace, that kindly Senator Palpatine is going to become the Emperor. And, but I know some people, especially, like, who were, like, you know, younger than us uh for them it was actually like a twist that palpatine and sidious were the same person 
And in the book, I thought it was interesting where it it does treat it like a twist. It tells you really early on in the scene where Dooku is talking to Sidious. And then it's like, and then Sidious, like, you know, and, and, and had like the, the handcuffs on, was in the chair and was, pal- it's like, there's a moment where it's like in, like in writing, they reveal that they're the same person. And, but I don't know, how did all of you feel about this, like, when you first saw the movie, about, like, you know, I assume everyone just knew that they were the same person all along, but in the movie, does it seem like a twist? I think I knew what Ian McDiarmid always looked like. Right. So, like, I know that, like, in the original trilogy, he's all scrunchy, you know, but even so, like, in episode one, I was like, that's, I recognize that face. We know this guy. He has so a very, there was no twist for me. He has a very distinctive voice, even though the voice of Palpatine and and uh, the Emperor are different. He they are yeah. still distinct in a in a very similar way, if that makes sense. And in the same way that like Anakin becoming Darth Vader is a twist, but not a twist at all. It, it sort of works the same way for me. Where like the journey is still interesting to me, but like it's not a surprise. Right. I mean, the thing that I just always wondered is, did George Lucas intend it to be a twist that they that that they that Sidious and Palpatine are the same person? It doesn't feel like it to me. I mean, watching the movies like in always Palpatine is like, hello, it's me. (laughs) He's creepy. He feels like a bad guy. And what he's doing to Anakin from moment one is like a little gross. You know, even if it's not explicitly like kill children, which it very quickly becomes like, even when he's like, are you sure that this is the right, you know, have you considered like all of that is like inherently sinister from minute one. He also has that thing going on that the like Marion Cotillard thing in Dark Knight Rises where you're like, (laughs) okay, if she's not involved with a twist, what is she doing here? (laughs) Yeah. Now I'm wondering, was Dark, Darth Sidious even credited in the first two movies? Mm. Like, if you yeah. look at his credit, does I it say Ian McDermott has both? impossible yeah. to know. <laughs> no one's ever watched the credits. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, just, like, I was just thinking about this because it feels like the book treats it like a, a twist early on, but I, but also, like, you know... I never thought of it as being a twist, but I do know that, like, for some younger people who watched all like the prequels first, they did not know that that the, the nice old man from Phantom Menace was also the dark hooded figure. Maybe if no, they had known his name was know. Sheev, that would have helped. Sheev. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sheev. Not oh, the actually, name an, of a helpful guy. Yeah. And sp- speaking of Palpatine, two things that I appreciated in this. Um, that I, I don't think were as explicit in the movie. Um, obviously, there's he tells the story of the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. But and okay, Andrew, you watched this last night. I have not watched the movie in like a couple of years. Does he explicitly say Darth Plagueis was my master and I killed him? He does not. So right. Wait, wait, wait. I take it back. So I mean, we had a it's, lot of family over there. There's a lot of talking. Um I I believe that the way it's done God, I'm conflating book and movie, honestly. Um Cuz I don't think that's in the movie. I I I think you're right. So I think that he says 
the Darth Plagueis the Wise story at the opera, and then later, instead of saying, he was my master, I killed him, he basically goes, we can keep people from dying. You know, like that Plagueis guy I talked about. I do not believe he right. makes the one-to-one connection of my master, Plagueis. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Um, and the other thing that I appreciated was uh, that, it, you know, the, the the scene when he's, you know, uh, electrocuting Mace Windu and his face melts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there has just been debate among people who've watched the movies for years of... Uh, did shooting the lightning cause his face to melt or is that his true form and Matthew Stover took a side in that debate yes and I really appreciated that it's like no the Palpatine thing was that was like like a mask he was putting on and this is what he really looks like he is evil and he looks it that's how Star Wars works yeah, but why? It's just confusing that he looks evil in a "I got burned by lightning" type of way. <laughs> I mean, this is—I mean—to to tie the thread here. If Sheev Palpatine is a guy from Naboo, is his melty face a third Nabooian race that we have Whoa. not met, or like, what's the deal? <laughs> Well, here's a, actually, okay, I have so many questions about his backstory, and also, <laughs> at this point, I don't, I'm, I'm sure some listeners will let us know uh, that, uh, what what is actually canon right now, but I also wonder, because, you know, he's a, he looks like he's a 75-year-old man, but could very well be much older than that. Mm-hmm. Did he... At some point, like, is Palpatine his birth name? Or did he at some point move to Naboo and then adopt this identity and, you know, just sort of like, you know, like insert himself into politics and rise up through that? Like, what is his whole story? I think that's definitively answered in the book because he says when, oh. when, I mean, this is just my take. Um, he says, I'll miss Palpatine. When his doesn't he? When his like face? Yeah. So, which suggested to me that it was a completely adopted persona. Well, I think the other thing which I have been waiting to like draw here. I mean, if we think that Palpatine and Sidious are two different entities, and then he drops the Palpatine facade, Anakin has a similar thing. Where throughout the book, he's like, "I'm carrying a dragon in me that makes me want to do bad things." Mm. Then when he becomes Darth Vader, someone says to him, you're Anakin Skywalker. And he's like, I know that's confusing, but no, I'm Darth Vader. The resemblance is misleading, deceptive. Yeah. Yeah. Which like. Oh my God. Yeah. I also have this notes where the separatists say to him, like, we were promised a reward, a handsome reward. And Anakin says, I am your reward. You don't find me handsome, <laughs> which I think fucking rules. Um, but like, I, but like, I believe the person who says that is actually listed there. We get their job description and they are the so. president and CEO of the Co- Commerce Guild. So I'm glad <laughs> to know we have CEOs among many other well, things in yeah. Star Wars. They're a business. But like that idea of like Anakin and Darth Vader. And then he's like, well, I'm not Anakin. 
this other thing is me now. And then I feel like there's a point where he then is like, no, I have to reconcile the fact that this has, is me. I've always, I'm both. And I've always been both. And I can't pretend that I, this Darth Vader thing is new. I, I have right? a, a Sidious. Which makes me sad. I, I have like a Sidious note, but first I want to just point out what I think is the worst joke in the mo- or in the book rather. <laughs> Wait, is it, is it the one on page 406? No, it's the one on page 68. Maybe oh. 406. Maybe 406 is worse, but on 68, uh, this is, I think, either right before or during the fight with Dooku, and uh, Dooku says, or rather, the prose says, the Chancellor's a civilian. You and General Kenobi, on the other hand, are legitimate military targets. It is up to you whether you will accompany me as captives or as corpses. And then Obi-Wan Kenobi goes, now there's a coincidence you face the identical choice which is like matthew stover's idea of obi-wan kenobi's wit is him being like i am rubber you are glue (laughs) well that feels correct for obi-wan kenobi a dork it does like a very sheltered dweeb (laughs) and hannah is the authority on obi-wan kenobi so I, I've made a that. lot of choices about how I interpret his character, and I will not be dissuaded. <laughs> the moment Clone Wars was like, he had a girlfriend and they fucked, I was like, absolutely not. No, they did not. Zero <laughs> percent. Wait, so Patrick. Space virgin only. What is the joke that's worse Sorry. than that? <laughs> so this is when Anakin is hacking up the Trade Federation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say what I like about this part is, um, just I, I, to be very clear, when I, I was... I think 11 when The Phantom Menace came out, and I was all about it. Uh, I had, like, the visual dictionary and all this stuff. Like, I knew the names of, like, all the, you know, like, Captain Panaka and all of those, like, D-level characters in it. But uh, including Newt Gunroy and, uh, you know, the the other, the the Nemoidians, you know, uh, maybe... I don't know if they're the most racist characters, but, you know, they're up there. Um, It is. It is, especially for that movie. Um, But this is a part about Newt Gunroy's imminent death. Uh, It says, Newt Gunroy, viceroy of the Trade Federation, stood trembling in an alcove, blood-tinged tears streaming down his green-mottled cheeks. The war. I'm I'm not going to do the voice. Um, The war, he whimpered. The war is over. Lord Sidious promised. He promised we would be left in peace. Then Anakin comes in. Oh, no. His his transmission was garbled. The blade came up. He promised you would be left in pieces. Anakin! Keep in mind, he's what? 21 years old? Yeah. He... He has jumps to, like, full sadism of just, like, cracking jokes while, like, dismembering people so fast. That was really surprising to me because in the movie, uh, Palpatine says, you know, we'll leave you in peace. And instead of doing the pieces joke, they zoom in on his hands and his fingers are crossed. So. I think... I mean, you guys read some of your favorite weird passages. I think I need to read my favorite passage in the entire book. And I oh, think- oh, 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 I, I, I already know what you're going to read. <laughs> this is on page 107. We're on the, uh, the invisible hand. Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi opened his eyes to find himself staring at what he strongly suspected was Anakin's butt. 
<laughs> it looked like Anakin's butt, well, his pants anyway, though it was thoroughly impossible for Obi-Wan to be certain, since he had never before had occasion to examine Anakin's butt upside down, which it currently appeared to be, nor from this rather uncomfortable close range. But he has looked at it. <laughs> and he does eventually realize it was Anakin's butt. <laughs> and can I just say, I, 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 that was exactly what I thought you were going to read. That whole sequence in the movie where, like, Obi-Wan's like, I got knocked out. Why are we in an elevator shaft? Oh, shit, don't drop me. Why is this happening? I do like. Uh, so, you got me. Elevator antics. Elevator antics. Beep, boop, boop. Do you guys think, and I'm just trying to get you to say yes to something I believe, <laughs> do you guys think that they heap a little too much suspicion on Palpatine in this? It's kind of unbelievable that they're like... I think maybe there's a Sith that hangs out with Palpatine. Like, they get pretty much that close without ever suspecting him. I mean, even Anakin's saying, I wish it was Masa Mata, because that guy's ugly and I want him dead. <laughs> I, I think Stover is trying to align the Sith with bigotry. Like, pretty... No, I, seriously, I think, like, he very... Because he goes into such detail with Dooku being racist towards Grievous and then has Anakin being like, and look at the tendrils on that guy's head. I hate them. And I, I have always thought like in the original trilogy, all of the bad guys are white men. There's no mm -hmm. diverse, there's no aliens. There's no people of color. And so in the sequel trilogy, when the new bad guys start having people of color and aliens, I was like, this is, yeah. Because I think you're right. I do think there is a level of like white supremacy because they are space fascists. Um, that extends to like what they are doing. Um, you know, anyway, I agree. The answer is yeah, yes, and, and, and I agree, is what I'm saying. Palpatine, in his like internal monologue, keeps thinking of Yoda as that little green freak. Doesn't he say that a few <laughs> they times? They say the word freak like four <laughs> times on one page. <laughs> And, and even later, don't, doesn't a clone mistake Yoda for like a oh, baby? Wait, wait, wait. Okay, that is a part where Obi-Wan disguises himself as like a hunchback carrying a baby and he, he does a voice and that that was the, as much as like I wish a lot of this stuff had been in the movie that was the scene I most wish I could have seen play out. <laughs> I, like, I, it's I, fine that they he, just walk into the Jedi Temple, but what if? I thought for sure you were going to say that's the one thing in the book we're, we're good without. <laughs> no, 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 no. I want Ewan McGregor, disguised as a hunchback, doing, I don't know, some sort of, like, Jamaican patois uh, <laughs> while carrying a CGI Yoda. That's Well, don't forget that Obi-Wan as a sand wizard does do... Lot of impersonations of monsters. He does. He He's does good do at that. this stuff. That's oh. your scene, Patrick. But the scene I wish was in the book, <laughs> I mean the film rather, is the scene where Palpatine files the paperwork for the Emperor Palpatine Surgical Reconstruction Center. He got <laughs> that name laugh. quickly. <laughs> it, that it was made, good. It made me think that while Vader was being repaired, he turned to someone. Like somebody was like, "Let's bring him to you know John Hopkins," and he was like the. The the Palpatine, <laughs> it's it's called the Palpatine now. <laughs> I will say, by the way, uh, to like piggyback on the whole, you know, Sith as you know these 
being like these discriminatory racists and stuff like that. Uh, so I'm, so I can't remember who, probably someone named Andrew, uh, earlier, uh, you know, compared Palpatine's recording device to like his Nixon tapes. And what fits it perfectly with that is, uh, have you guys seen this? There, there, some interview with, with Lucas, or maybe it, it might've been like one of the transcripts of like a story meeting when he's working on the original trilogy. And he was just kind of jokingly referring to the emperor as he said like, Oh yeah, his name is Richard M. Nixon. And, uh, cause he, you know, cause like Lucas was like, I mean, he's always been somewhat political, but he, he would be like overtly political back then, you know, when he, he was like, Oh yeah, it's about the Vietnam war and stuff like that. But he was like, the fact that he was making references to just Palpatine, just being Nixon, like decades ago before Palpatine had a name and uh and now they're even going the step further with it of being like and he also uh has recording devices in his office I like that I I I thought that Stover was a great fit for Star Wars books for that very reason that there's a lot of like with the sequel trilogy which we promised we wouldn't bring up again um there's a lot of you know not landing here or there on the politics of the story anymore. And I feel like Stover really gets it. Like, he gets that these are metaphors for political situations we have been in as Earth people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, uh, the Republican Party being really good at, like, messaging <laughs> and, uh, and, like, allying themselves around, like, these core policies and like you know these core demographics and uh the, Demo the democrats being uh less good at it yeah to continue yeah. on this political metaphor do we think in the post return of the jedi world empire day was refashioned as a different federal holiday was it their uh, columbus day that became something else i <laughs> he seems very excited to say hey guys Going forward, this is Empire Day. Every May 15th, celebrate yeah, Empire I mean, Day. That's one of those things I also wondered. Did Lucas come up with that? Because, like, I assume that George signed, like, read, I don't know if he read the book, but at least, like, someone gave him, like, notes on it, and he approved it because it had to be published. And so did he come up with Empire Day and it just didn't make it into the movie? Is this technically canon in all of Star Wars now? There is an account, uh, and, and who's to say if it's true, because I found this quote on Reddit, but there is a, a, a an allegation made that Matthew Stover submitted his transcript from the, for the book to Lucasfilm, and George Lucas himself made pretty sweeping edits on, like, select passages, and handed it back to him and was like, these you cannot change. Who's to say what those edits were? Who's to say if that Reddit post is even true? But if that is true, it sounds like he at least had a lot of power, whether he wielded it or not. I'm so curious what it would be. Because I think that in general, as we're saying, like this book really gets it. It understands like the story and the characters, and it all feels right and cohesive. Mm -hmm. Like, what was it that George Lucas said, like, uh-uh, you've missed the you've missed it completely here. This this is not right and it has to go. 
He's yeah. so curious. Well, if Matthew Stover hadn't ghosted me, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, Matt. Matthew, if you're listening, I understand you're a busy guy and I'd love to get you for another book sometime. And we love your book. <laughs> <laughs> we we do. We absolutely love it. Uh, 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 Palpatine question. Maybe this is obvious to people who are at all familiar with the extended universe, but is it just accepted that Palpatine is Anakin's dad? No. This is this is uh, a hot personally. Issue. No. I was wondering because this has been like a hotly debated thing for years. Like, did Palpatine like? And and, and there was a. Uh, a comic book issue, I think within the past like five years that like hinted that it was like maybe a thing, but also I think that scene was like someone's imagination, like thinking of, like I think it was like Anakin thinking about something that maybe happened. So it's never been confirmed, but about the idea that Palpatine used his mm-hmm. force, midi-chlorian altering abilities to like, you know, create this immaculate conception. Um, but yeah, I, 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 that's never been confirmed, to my knowledge. By the laws of drama, I feel like it's true. Like, if <laughs> the way it's presented, I feel like it's supposed to get into my mind that it's true. Because in Phantom Menace, Qui-Gon asks, who's the dad? And Anakin's mom says, there is no dad. And then... Palpatine in Sith gives a monologue about how you can manipulate midichlorians to create life while like sperm swim in the background. Yeah. Which we learn in this book are it's a Mon Calamari opera, so maybe some of Akbar's family were in that. <laughs> I, I do think dramatically it makes sense. I think this is me being like, I don't give a shit. Like for me that Anakin just like appears is fine. Like, well, also, if you were Mr. Sith Lord who lives on Coruscant, why would you pick some lady in the mid, like, way out in the outer rim who maybe no one will ever find this kid? Like, they find him basically by accident. But then he also caused their hyperdrive to fail at that exact point where they were near Tatooine, and so they had to go to Tatooine, and he caused it. No, th- 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 this is the thing. I don't like it because <laughs> it's like, like, I appreciate how much planning he does and manipulation he does in this book, but if you're saying, I mean, that would be getting into like uh, like the movie Spectre, where Christoph Waltz just lists yeah. things from previous movies and is like, oh, I did those. <laughs> the thing I love about Spectre is that they, as you say, they basically say that all these villains have been working together, and you look at I'm no I'm not like a James Bond guy, so I don't remember the specific villains that well. Don't worry, Hannah's here. But yeah, and uh, you, other Andrew. You look at like the the James Bond villains, and you're like, oh, this is like a very put together rich man, and this is like a dangerous thug. They've been working together. <laughs> that must have been a fraught relationship. <laughs> <laughs> In the same way that Dooku and Grievous having to be on the same side is fraught. Bam. Together. We did it. Does Grievous know that Palpatine is Sidious? No. No. Cool. Ask an answer. (laughs) Yeah. I think they do make it clear at some point in the book that he, he thinks the Chancellor is just the Chancellor. Hmm. 
Okay, that seems Palpatine's like a dangerous kept those two ploy. sides pretty separate. <laughs> I guess I guess Sidious is just powerful enough that if if there was any risk of like Grievous killing him, he could just kill Grievous first. Yeah. Still, that's like a plan gone very awry. <laughs> yeah. Like, how'd you escape General Grievous? Oh, gee, uh, he fell. I don't know. Like, <laughs> he'd have to really use his, like, good politics powers to be like, yes, I was kidnapped and I escaped on my own and he's dead. And, uh, but I didn't do it. I'm a weak old man. <laughs> <laughs> Love to see that scene, honestly. Um, but slightly back to the, like, Naboo thing or Tatooine, whatever. I don't know. Sorry. There is, like, the thing for me with, like, and then the hyperdrive fails and they, like, this, like, concept that Obi-Wan Kenobi is, like, it's all my fault. Like, there's this point in the book where after he watches Anakin kill all the kids on the hollow screen or whatever, he's like, I wish I was dead. I should have let them kill me. This never would have happened. Actually, that's too late. I should have died before I ever met Anakin because it's my fault. Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, in Phantom Menace, he's like, oh, we could go to Tatooine. That's a place. <laughs> like, and I wonder how many times does poor Ben Kenobi be like... I did it. I brought the downfall of our galactic <laughs> democracy. Like literally every single thing here is my bad. Well, he moves to Tatooine. And so he's just reminded of it every day. He is punishing himself. Well, we moved yeah. away from the idea of the prophecy, but I would like to know <laughs> yeah. what does it mean to bring balance to the force? And is it some monkey's paw thing where they're like, <laughs> well, you were in power, and now you're not in power. Balance. Can okay. This is. I, I mean, this is like the joke that I feel like my friends thought in high school was like there used you know before Anakin brings balance to the Force. There's like a hundred Jedi and two Sith, <laughs> and then there's two Jedi and two Sith. <laughs> so he does it. So okay, you guys didn't know how to read a prophecy. That's on you. <laughs> You interpreted it wrong. It was a it was a weight balance. <laughs> right. This is part of what's always driven me nuts about it because it's like his <laughs> he's prophes he's prophesized to destroy the Sith and thus bring balance to the Force. But I'm just like, but is it balanced then? If you wipe out one side, then it's off balance. Like, I mean, I guess. You know, wouldn't a balance be, be a thing where it's like, I don't know, maybe you're each there, but you're just doing your own thing. And uh, and just like, I mean, like, again, I don't like the, the expression bring balance to the force sounds amazing. I mean, I think in the end, Anakin does it anyway by having Luke, who does bring balance to the force, who in himself has a balanced good and bad. Right. Right. Not I mean, to like, be too serious here, but. But that's that that is the thing. Like I would think that bring balance to the force would involve, you know, the, the stuff that I like that it seemed like the sequel trilogy was getting to, which is like finding a way where within yourself you can balance light and dark and you're like living like a healthier life and you like accept that like life is about all of these things. It's about the good and the bad and the light and the darkness and all of that stuff. Uh that seem like that seems to me like a way to bring balance to the force. Um, to kill uh, one side completely doesn't sound like it. 
I must say we also never hear the language of the prophecy. We just hear them say, this is what we think the prophecy means. So maybe the prophecy is like a lot more vague. <laughs> and the Jedi were like, yes, destroy the Sith, bounce the force. We did it. Um, and they were just like, no, 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 you mistranslated this Latin phrase. You know, seems realistic. You're really reading the prophecy you want to read right now. <laughs> and this is why I think the prophecy just kind of like unnecessarily complicates all of it. <laughs> I I will argue, I don't love the prophecy, but in favor of it being, if it making sense that it's in the prequels, but not the originals, the infrastructure of Jedi's teaching Jedi's has evaporated as of episode four. So it, it kind of makes sense that maybe the prophecy wouldn't be getting brought up all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, people don't even know that Jedi are... are they've, like, you know, fallen into, like, myths and legends. Mm -hmm. But it's also a thing, so like... fast. You know, yeah. Obi-Wan does not bring it up. <laughs> no, He's embarrassed, of course yeah, not. Yeah, he's, he's clearly, like, moved past that. He's like, you know what? Let's, let's just, It's better just not to talk about it. I mean, by anymore. episode four, Obi-Wan is also like, yes, my best friend, your father, Anakin Skywalker, and then this douchebag Darth Vader, who I never met and then killed your dad. Like, he has really <laughs> just, like, spent enough time alone to decide, like, there's, we can we can forward, we can pass on the good stuff and really not talk about the bad stuff. And I think he also realized let's not ever tell anyone they're the chosen one because that's just like <laughs> that's just too. I mean, I mean, it is straight up like I'm just thinking like the scene in The Matrix where Neo is hanging out with Cipher and he just goes, "So you're here to save the world, huh?" <laughs> And it, it's just like, you know, like recognizing like what an absurd thing to be told. Yeah. And uh, yeah, don't tell anyone that. That's too much pressure. Well, it's funny because at the end of the book, it seems like Yoda's excited for like Leia and Luke. They're going to be the future Jedi. And Obi-Wan's like, I'm good to be an eccentric uncle for the next <laughs> 70 years. Like, I don't, don't bother me ever again. Another thing that like full on breaks my heart about Obi-Wan Kenobi is he's like, yeah, I tried raising a kid. It didn't go well. You want me to raise another kid? I don't think that's a good idea. Like, a, a deeply loving, kind person. Like, Obi-Wan Kenobi is a great guy. And it's just like, oh, no, no, uh, never, never again. I, I couldn't possibly. Like, this Anakin thing was so bad. It hurt me so badly. He is the most evil man alive now. So maybe I am not the guy to, to, to raise Luke. Like, I should not be his dad. It, I feel like the prequel trilogy does a ton of work to make it very confusing when Obi-Wan calls him Darth in the original Star Wars Because <laughs> it's like calling him like, okay, Lieutenant. It's like right? saying- it's like a title. It's like he's saying, okay, mister, but like, but like he's also respecting Vader's terminology. And also, like, the tone of Alec Guinness is as if it's his first name. Yes! <laughs> which is its own fun thing. Like, yeah. Also, one thing I was wondering, and, I mean, this applies to the movie as well, but how much time did uh, Sidious spend thinking up the name Darth Vader before he gives it to him? Oh, he pulls it because out of thin air. Yeah. Is, like, is that how, these, how the Sith naming thing goes? It's like, look, I'm just not going to think about it too much. Uh, I'm just going to, like, see what comes to me in the moment, you know, and that's your name. That is your name, and you're stuck with it now forever. 
I mean, it's weird because like Darth Maul is a guy who mauls people, you know? Darth Tyrannus is a guy who is tyrannical towards other people. Darth Vader, he's a dad. <laughs> like, he is, you know, Dervater. Like, it is a little, like, not, not as violent as it could be, given the, like, Darth Sidious, he's really insidious. Yeah. There is something to it that, like, well, we already had the name, so we're stuck with it. I think Darth Tyrannus is a, a really cool name, and uh, it's way cooler than Dooku. And it's a shame <laughs> that, that, I mean, throughout all Star Wars media where Dooku appears, I know why he goes by Dooku more because he's like a from like a rich family and he's you know he's a count. Uh, and but he used to be a Jedi, right? Yeah, he was a Jedi, but also cool. he's like a Jedi from like a very posh family. And like he's like one of the richest people in the galaxy. <laughs> but like Darth Tyrannus just sounds really good. And also, I feel like in specifically in Attack of the Clones, it's a little confused. They they don't they just kind of call him both like back and forth, and it's not. It, it's yeah. It, it George didn't make it as clear as he could. George is like me. He don't care. It doesn't matter to him. That's not where George Lucas's focus is. What do you? What and do unfortunately, you think, dorks. How do you feel about my prescriptive note on the prequel trilogy that it would be like ten times better if Dooku was there from the beginning? Yes, yeah. because yeah. He, by the time he is beheaded in Revenge of the Sith. It feels normal. It feels like, yes, we are getting one villain per movie. I understand. <laughs> Whereas it really should feel like, I thought he was Darth Vader for the prequels. Or if he was just like another senator who was around in Phantom Menace, who was just like, hmm. And then they're like, okay, well, he left the Senate to become a separatist. And we're like, oh, that's not great. Right. And then, you know, like, just, I feel like, in the same way that, like, Jimmy Smith is like, hello, I'm in one scene. And then he's in more and more of the movies. Right. I mean, like, what a thing that I that I'm very conflicted about with the prequels is I I genuinely believe Phantom Menace is the best of the three. Um, yeah, um, but also most of it story wise is kind of unnecessary, and uh, and you could honestly it would probably be better if you spread the stuff from like episodes two and three across three movies. Because, like, other than basically pretty much, like, bringing Anakin, like, finding Anakin, like, also he's so young in the first movie. He's basically a different character. Uh, and and so that's the thing. I'm just like, well, that's the one that I would any time, like, most want to watch of the three. Also, it, but it's the one that seems so disconnected from the other two. Almost if, like, George made it and then realized, like... Oh God! I, 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 all there's all this stuff that I probably should have put in the first movie that I now that like like uh, cl cl clone army what whatever some 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 guy like ten years ago just ordered it like uh and we're never gonna talk about him like all these things like that so yes it Dooku also, should be in the first one from from my perspective <laughs> it's also a movie where like Obi Wan and Anakin have like one scene together at the end you know like it's not like. It's wild to me that Obi-Wan is not part of the Tatooine storyline, but yes. he like gets to know this kid and like cares for this kid. And then is like, I do feel a responsibility to this kid. He's just like, well, my master died and I promised. Um, it does feel like, and then you fast forward 10 years and they're like, we're friends. It's great. <laughs> uh, and they're like covering a lot of ground in like uh, expository dialogue. What? Yeah. That, that one elevator ride. <laughs> where, where they're just talking about what is it? Remember you know? when you were a boy? 
We yeah, knew you liked the, the, Padme when you were a child. <laughs> <laughs> Don't embarrass yourself. Uh, you got a chance not many kids get, which is you had a babysitter crush. It's kind of age appropriate now, and she seems interested. <laughs> uh, so just going it back so to the... It's so hard to remember, sorry, in The Phantom Menace, that Padme is supposed to be 14 years old. But like, she's 14, Anakin's 10, you're like, okay. But I'm like, no, Natalie Portman's 20 years old. Like, and she's 18. She's like 16. But to me, she's like, I just know her as an adult. And so watching that movie, she feels like more of an adult. She's and also it's a queen. Like, and she's a queen. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> yep. Right. But be- I think because she spends so much of that movie in like royal garb, mm-hmm. like addressing like large groups of people, she reads as even older than she is. Yes. I mean, so- I love an older woman who's like, I'm a date this hot young thing. I respect that. I'm happy for her. I, I was, uh, I had, went on that exact journey. When I watched The Phantom Menace the other day, I thought, oh my God, she is actually young. Because when I saw it, I was nine and she was 16. And I thought, that's a fully grown adult woman. <laughs> you know? Uh, I was yeah. shocked to go back and learn that like their ages are fairly close. Uh, and I think you're right. I think that the the regalia of royalty, especially when you're a kid, makes you be like, that's an adult, Anakin's a kid. Which then always made episodes two and three feel sort of gross to me. But maybe they're not? I don't know. I think it's just the choice to like have Anakin be such a child in the first one. Mm-hmm. Like He's not a 12-year-old, he's a 9-year-old. And there's a big difference there. Mm-hmm. Like, he is, like, the, just the most innocent, like, kind of, like, cherubic, little, like, roly-poly, like, nice kid. And he's not in any way the same person between episodes one and two. It is objectively insane that 14-year-old Padme didn't look at 19-year-old Obi-Wan and go, that guy's hot. Like, is he right. a priest? Yes, but the taboo is sexy. Like, that's how, I mean, this, the joke is, like, that's how we know these movies were written by, like, adult men. They, like didn't have the teenage girl perspective. <laughs> Which then, in Revenge of the Sith, when Anakin is like, I know you've been fucking my wife, like, that could have come from somewhere. Oh, we have to talk about that. And, like, what the book does that I think is so extraordinary is there's, like, multiple scenes where Obi-Wan and Padme talk to each other alone. There are scenes where they are alone together. So Anakin, And then people tell Anakin, you know, Obi-Wan's been seen with the senator and we think they're having an affair. And because their marriage is secret, he's like... Oh, <laughs> it like gives him you know like a stroke even palpatine saying i don't know if you can trust this padme yeah i mean this is the string pulling but like to then like in the movie when anakin's like what are you doing with my wife it feels like totally out of left field because obi-wan's like their weird like virgin friend who's <laughs> like i've never been interested in that in my life you know but like if in episode one padme was like i have a crush on that older guy and then eventually it's like oh no anakin's the guy for me but there's always this underlying tension of like i used to think he was so cute that like builds a thing i have it lays some tracks i have a suspicion that lucas did not plan these movies out like very much <laughs> they're they're ostensibly super connected but if he was going to, wouldn't he do stuff like have one scene with Dooku in the first movie? Uh, address Grievous as like anything previously. <laughs> I, it just feels, the third movie feels very slapped together uh, in that way. And, and I agree also that the introduction of the clones is 
feels like very retconny. Um, I, I gotta be honest, I, when I was watching Revenge of the Sith, I was looking for the part where Anakin believes that Obi-Wan's sleeping with Padme, and I, I didn't even catch it. It's one line when they have their, like, showdown on... On Mustafar. With Mustafar, yeah. It's, like, during when they're standing on that platform together, like, throwing, like, you're being mean. No, you're being mean. But so there's uh, Back no, and forth. There's, like, one line. There's no line where Palpatine suggests it in the film. Nope. It's, it's nothing until all of a sudden Anakin is like, and on top of everything else. <laughs> I thought, it, I found it very unbelievable in the book that even as far gone as Anakin is, when, when we're like halfway through, I found it very unbelievable that he would take the bait that uh, Palpatine was giving him. It didn't feel like he was that far gone to be like, I'm ready to believe that my hero is sleeping with my girlfriend. He's in a very emotionally volatile, vulnerable place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know. And he's like, again, he's a young guy. He's like not old enough to have any perspective. True, yeah. I think what you say, thing. Andrew, and this brings us back to the whole book thing in general about George not planning the prequels out, not that he planned any of them out, is that I think at this point there was such an expanded universe in the books and comics and things that he just knew someone else would explain it. He's like, I don't need to explain mm -hmm. Dooku. There's going to be a Dooku book out next Christmas. So someone else can deal with that. And I can just focus on what I feel like talking about today. I, I mean, the thing with Dooku also is like, you could e even without like planning it all, like the whole trilogy in detail. It's just funny that he doesn't show up for so long in episode two. Mm -hmm. It takes like, I think at least half the movie to, to get to Dooku. And then when he does show up, it's treated as if we all know who Dooku is and are all familiar with him. It's, I mean, you know, George was a little bit rusty when it came to screenwriting. He hadn't done it in a few decades. And, uh, and he kept asking his friends to, like, direct the movies or like he didn't want to <laughs> do any of this. Yeah. And no one would do the jobs. And he was like, but I, I want them to exist. I just don't really want to write them or direct them. And so, you know, uh, he, he did his best. And then the important thing is we got a good novelization out of the third movie. Wait, does it, has anyone read the novelizations of episodes one and two? They're written by different people. If they were written by the same guy, I would have eaten them up. Yeah, and, and I'm, I, I was just going to say I, I haven't read them, but I assume since Matthew Stover only wrote this one, that it's the same feeling reading them. I imagine that you like get would get to the third book and be like, why do I suddenly care about these characters? <laughs> Where did this rich tapestry of emotions come from? Yeah. A thing I was thinking about while reading this book is, did any of you guys watch, I, th I, th I th think these came out like at least five years ago. Uh, these YouTube videos by belated media uh, like I think it's like what the first one's like what if the Phantom Menace was good and they're basically these like kind of rewrites of and like normally I'm not super into projects like this but like like the the, the way like the parameters they put on them for each of the the prequels is like this is basically like if we got like the final draft of the script and we're able to just do some script doctoring on it and like give George some notes for like how to take what was there and then just kind of like tell the story a bit better, and um, and they're they're actually like really compelling because they're, they're not the like the like the obvious tired like 
let's shit on the prequels and like, mm-hmm. you know, how much they suck. It's like actually trying to be like, it's using the good foundations that are there and just trying to tell the stories a bit better. And I was thinking about uh, those videos. Like, again, I haven't watched them in at least five years, but they're all worthwhile. And they do a lot of this stuff being like, oh, okay, maybe let's seed the stuff of like a potential like, like uh, at least like Anakin like being jealous of uh of of like Padme and Obi Wan or like seeding like the not even a real like love triangle but at least like maybe she's a little bit interested in Obi Wan or like maybe have them spend a little bit more time together doing that kind of thing and this book kind of felt like it reminded me of those videos because it took the solid foundations and just added the stuff that was missing. Andrew, were you about to say that you had read other? I have not read other novelizations, but what I was, you know, the elementary school student when Phantom Menace came out. So I read a lot of children's books from like Jar Jar's Adventure in Coruscant and Anakin's Adventure on Tatooine. So, you know, I've gotten a little more of the story from a very different perspective. (laughs) I mean, I, in my like height of like, I want all the Obi-Wan Kenobi information, did my homework of like, what are the good Ben Kenobi books? and read like five extended universe books, including the direct prequel to Revenge of the Sith, Labyrinth of Evil, which is pretty good. Um, and like one of, you know, like a couple other ones. And they read one where it's like Obi-Wan and like in this one, Anakin is 12 or 13. And I was like, ah, fun, <laughs> give me more. So I, I have read some of them and I don't think any of them are quite at the level of the Revenge of the Sith writing, like the writing is just so good. And the, the way he's, he's creating a story out of what we have is fantastic. But, you know, we got a couple other under my belt. <laughs> As we sort of, it, it feels, get get to the end of this conversation, I, I want to take a look at, we've done, you know, four, five, maybe six novelizations now. And for the most part, they are, they feel lacking. Right, I mean, they're fun to read because we have this obsession. We each have this obsession with film, and and so the relationship between the book and the movie is inherently interesting to us. But I, why do we think, or why do each of us think that this book works where other novelizations sort of fail? I think it's because it really is sort of making it its own. Like some of the novelizations, novelizations we've read, like Battleship is the one I'm really thinking of, are so beholden to the script that there aren't scenes that, there's barely scenes that aren't in the movie mm-hmm. in the novelization. Like it feels to me like Matthew Starver was like, cool, I have an outline and I have some dialogue that I may or may not use, but from here I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> like he's writing more of a novel than a novelization. And that like elevates it. And he's a good writer. I mean, that helps. Mm-hmm. And he's an expert in multiple martial arts. And he yeah, carries I mean, some that of the over martial to arts to the talk. Like, there's a part where they're where everyone's like, I don't know why I have to go fight anybody. Like, I'm I'm not really good at sword fighting. I only learned one of the sword fighting styles. And I was like, this feels informed by someone who knows a little something about this. Can I can I read the passage about Vopad? <laughs> yes. Okay, so as I said This is Mace Windu's style, right? Yes. So as I as I said in, in my intro, uh Matthew Stover wrote this book called Shatterpoints, uh, which is shocking because the word never comes up in Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> um, which is uh a Mace Windu centric book. I've not read it, but in that he invents 
the lightsaber dueling style of Vapod, I think is how my my audiobook reader pronounced it. Um, <laughs> and, he, and he really uses the Revenge of the Sith novelization to showcase this thing he himself brought into the Star Wars universe. So this is a passage in which Mace Windu is is already fighting uh, Palpatine using this uh, this tactic. It says, uh, Sinking into Vapod, Mace Windu fought for his life. More than his life. Each whirl of blade and whip crack of lightning was a strike in defense of democracy, of justice and peace, of the rights of ordinary beings to live their own lives in their own ways. Vapod, the seventh form of lightsaber combat, takes its name from a notoriously dangerous predator native to the moons of Serapin. A Vapod attacks its prey with whipping strikes of its blindingly fast tentacles. Most have at least seven. It is not uncommon for them to have as many as twelve. The largest ever killed had twenty-three. With a Vapod, one never knew how many tentacles it had until it was dead. They moved too fast to count. Almost too fast to see. So did Mace's blade. Vapod is as aggressive and powerful as its namesake, but its power comes at great risk. Immersion in Vapod opens the gates that restrains one's inner darkness. To use Vapod, a Jedi must allow himself to enjoy the fight. He must give himself over to the thrill of battle, the rush of winning. Vapod is a path that leads through the penumbra on the dark side. Mace Windu created this style, and he was its only living master. This was Vapod's ultimate test. I mean, it <laughs> rules. <laughs> I love that Mace Windu was like, I made this up. It's definitely against the rules because you have to enjoy fighting, which is not the Jedi way. And I'm never going to teach to anybody. Suck a dick. Well, it's, like, it, it's totally <laughs> antithetical to what Yoda says when he, or thinks, when he runs away. He thinks about how he was, like, unable to evolve or whatever. And Mace Windu's out here doing totally different stuff. He's like, the Sith are good because they're evil. I could be a little evil. (laughs) I mean, we all know that Mace Windu is cool. In the same way that with very little evidence in the films, we all know that Kit Fisto is cool. You know, like... Yes, yes. I'm glad to have additional evidence of, like, Mace Windu is cool because he was like, I'm going to bend the rules. Like... Huh, love that for him. It reminds me a love little bit. And look, I'm not going to bring up my 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 alcoholism on every episode, but it reminds <laughs> me a little bit of like, um, did you do you guys see another round the Mads Mikkelsen movie? And yeah. the scene where wait, what a picture, and the scene where he is trying to make amends with his wife, and she's very upset with him over his drinking, and she is having a glass of wine while they talk about it. And mm-hmm. it's this feeling that I that I like remember from when I was a heavy drinker, which is like you people talk to you about alcohol, not understanding that your relationships to it are like wildly different, right? So that their knowledge of the substance doesn't necessarily apply to yours. And when I was reading this thing about Vapod, I was like, Mace Windu is maybe so arrogant because he is, like, genetically conditioned to be able to flirt with the dark side, to essentially, like, take a shot without getting addicted. And he's, like, looking at an addicted man, Anakin, and being like, you know, 
I, I know about the dark side. Like, why are, what's the big deal? I don't know. Maybe that's a reach. Yeah. No, I think that's a good perspective. And I think all of this is like true. Like the, the joy for me of the prequels in general is there's so much that's not explicit that when you say that, and I'm like, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. <laughs> like, is it based in anything other than like the way that you engage with this story? Like, oh, I don't know, but it totally like makes sense to me. And it is plausible because there's nothing to say. No, that's not it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I mean, considering that, like, Anakin's arc is basically about succumbing to weakness and, like, adopting a really unhealthy lifestyle, uh, I, I, I think that's a... Honestly, there's, like, enough there for that read. Yeah, yeah, I, and I, I, I feel like it's very vague in Star Wars. Like, they talk about knowing the dark side and whatnot, but they never really define what that is. And Matthew Stover gives us maybe the only taste in the entire Star Wars universe of, like, the idea of, you know, I take a little spoonful of the bad stuff to to sort of understand what I'm doing. And this concept of, like, having a different perspective on the Force, like, no, none of the, the Jedi Council members ever had a life before they were Jedi. So when they're like, yeah, Anakin, get over your fucking mom. It doesn't matter. Because, like, we all did that when we were babies. And it's like, Anakin had a life until he was like a, th a thoughtful thinking human being right. and they're just like we don't get you and you should be like us and he's like i don't i can't like we are coming at this from unbelievably different perspectives and they're like well that's your problem <laughs> which is awful yeah yeah definitely i they, they're they're very much like saying i am able to live in a certain way and because of my own like interior feelings i expect you to be able to uphold the same exact thing it's like weirdly lacking empathy yeah you know this is like um you know lacking empathy but meanwhile like the interior like dot like thoughts where like obi-wan is like just has like an unbelievable strength of feeling for anakin that he knows he can't do anything with because he's a good jedi um but like if the jedi were a little more understanding and he could like express those things <laughs> everybody would be happier, healthier, and safer. You know, like, everyone is having these emotions, and the Jedi say, like, crush it, crush it, crush it. Though it's normal and healthy to feel things and connect to people. So Revenge of the Sith is basically, like, a parable about repression. <laughs> I think so, yeah. And even I feel like there were points where Padme is like, I think it's time that we just, like, run away together. Like, this is fucking us up. Like, let's just get out. And it comes like, I can't. Uh, going, going back to just the original question about why the book is good, I, I think a lot of the books that we've seen that are, like, not so good, they th and I, I say this every episode, but they think that the key to writing a novelization is just adding interiority, right? So you read the novelization of Gremlins, and it's a lot of, like, it's super cold in here, Gizmo thought. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> And I think Revenge of the Sith is the first book that we've read that has straight up just more story than the movie. It, it like adds narrative. And, and Patrick, you were talking about at the beginning of this conversation how you'd read things in the book and then you'd look at the movie and be like, I guess that is there, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel the same. And I think it's because Stover has like expanded the story in such a way that the movie is still true, but it ends up feeling like a Cliff Notes version 
of a longer text. So That's when, a really good way to put it. When yeah. you see, like, uh, this encounter between Anakin and Obi-Wan in the movie, you're like, I get what's going on here, but I don't really feel it. And then when you watch it again, having read the book, you're like, all of this stuff I learned from the book is now living through their performances. So that information has added to the experience. And I think that's what really puts this book above all others we've done, is that it it informs what's already there by filling in blanks. I agree. So, uh, I mean, when, when we asked the question, which maybe you were about to do. I was uh, literally you... about to do it. I'll let you do it. No, you can preempt it. <laughs> okay, but the question of having read this book, having seen the movie, would you recommend it to someone who's seen the movie? Have, would you recommend it to someone who has not seen the movie? Would you recommend it at all? And I think we all have like explicitly been like, yes, we recommend it. But like, would you recommend it to someone who hadn't seen the movie if that person exists? The question is, have they seen other Star Wars movies? I'm not, you know what, you could, I, I think you could give this to someone who has never encountered a Star War in their life. I think they establish enough at the beginning, especially in that first like 120 pages, like they tell you what every character's deal is, and so you get it. Uh, but also, it w- you know, it would be weird to be like, hey, for your very first Star Wars experience, read the novelization of episode three. But that said, no, I, I, I would recommend this to people who have uh, seen or not seen the movie. I think it, this is the best version of this story. I, I totally agree. I think that it this is the highest praise yet that I'm going to give in this segment we do at the end. I think higher praise is possible. The, the praise I'm going to give is like, if you have a relationship to Star Wars... I would recommend the book, whether you've seen this particular movie or not. I would also recommend the book to someone who's just like a weirdo like us, who like enjoys novelization (laughs) and enjoys, is kind of like a movie freak, you know? I might like, Hannah, if you had not read this book, I might be like, you know, you should read that. I mean, obviously you did that to Patrick, so... And by the way, I was thinking earlier, you should abuse this power now and rec- and, and, and be like, you know, the novelization of The Beaver is actually, like, terrific. <laughs> and you have Does to take my exist? word for it because you know I'm honest. If, God, I hope not. I'm, I'm not going to Google it because I want to believe it's out there for us to do something. <laughs> um, I mean, I have read many novelizations and I know there are bad ones. I've read many bad ones. And I recommend this one because it is a good book. Period. Absolutely. It succeeds. That's a great way to put it. It succeeds in spades as the art form it is, as opposed to as a add-on to another piece of art. Um, that yeah. being said, I think theoretically there's higher praise to give some novelization. <laughs> I'm reserving the I would recommend it to anyone, regardless of background. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like I'm trying to think. Would I would I give this to like my parents and be like, "This is a great novel that you must read." I'm not. I'm not sure I'd go that far. But, I wish I could go that far. But if like, I 
I, I will say, if I just like left this book hanging around and I was like visiting my parents and one of them picked it up and started reading, I would be like, oh, you know, that book's pretty good. You, you actually might enjoy it now that you have already decided to check it out. Yeah, I don't know if I have anything extra to add to this conversation. I think I would recommend it to anyone, whether they've seen the movie or not. I mean, if only for the Anakin butt pass. You know? <laughs> it's, it's up there with the great works of Joyce and everyone, you know. I think if I met someone who was like, I've never seen a Star Wars, but I really like science fiction or like I like space stories or, you know, I like any of the stuff that's in here. I'd be like, oh, you know, if someone's like, I don't like sci-fi and I've never seen a Star Wars, I probably wouldn't recommend it to them because they would hate it, even if it's good. You know, it's not for them. Right. And it's such, (laughs) these books are such a huge ask to begin with because they're often very long. So. And this one is not short. Oh, uh, to, to just say my, my, the last thing I have to say about this book. So I've like, I feel like like any any person who cares about Star Wars, everyone has their own usually somewhat complicated relationship with the prequels. And uh, and as I like, what I usually say about like my general take on them is, I I like I said at the beginning of this episode. I think on paper, the general story being told is very compelling. I don't think the execution is great. Um, I enjoy thinking about and talking about the prequels more than I enjoy watching the prequels. And this book is just like, I feel like the ultimate example of like the potential that is there. That like, th- this is why they are compelling because like there is, there is a genuinely good story there. And uh, and I just you know, I wish that the version on screen <laughs> was this one. I really do. I don't really like. I don't like rewatching this movie. I find it g- generally f- frustrating and kind of <laughs> annoying. And I wish it was this book. It's it's not only a good story. It's one that isn't elsewhere in the Star Wars saga as well. It's you can you can make a one to one connection between a new hope and Force Awakens. This is singular. Well, Patrick, where do you where do you enjoy people finding what you do and how you do it? I most enjoy people finding what I do uh, when they go to YouTube.com mm-hmm. and uh, and search for Patrick Willems. Now I understand that own... users can upload their own videos on that on that particular <laughs> platform. It's this, it's this, it's this incredible new technology uh, that Google, uh, you know, has has been working on, and anyone can can upload videos, and they can be watched around the world. So what what kind devices. of what kind of content might I find you post in there? <sighs> oh, okay. Well, my kind of content uh, tend to be um, increasingly long and um, impenetrable video essays about movies. Uh, that is what I do for a job, and uh, and right now we I'm not working on a video essay. I'm working on a basically kind of mini fully narrative film that is the season finale of the 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 narrative that has run through my videos for the past year and a half that will be premiering on the streaming platform Nebula in July. Hey everyone, this is Overby coming at you from the present day. Uh, Patrick did say in the episode that his film was coming out in July. Just wanted to give you the update that it has finished filming and should be popping up sometime in the next couple months on Nebula. So keep your eyes out. Okay, back to the show. 
Amazing. What, what's That's the deal me. with Nebula? Do I have to subscribe? Uh, you do. It is a, a really worthwhile platform that I helped develop. A subscription is $3 a month. And Pretty reasonable. That's very. It, it's nothing. There's really good stuff on there. Uh, no ads. Uh, great place. No comment sections, which I love. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's what I do. That's what I'm working on. Uh, I have videos about Star Wars, but I'm never going to make another one again. Uh, <laughs> I made my final Star Wars video in February 2020 and declared that was the end forever. Um, I will only talk about Star Wars publicly on podcasts. Um, so, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on to Authorized. Uh, thank you to our mm-hmm. listeners for, uh, you know, tuning in for our hotly anticipated Revenge of the Sith episode. Uh, we will be back next week with, let me think about this messed up chronology, Wild Wild West. <laughs> Ew. Absolutely. With, with uh, guest Max Fitzpatrick from The Max and Tony Show, uh, a lovely podcast. So, uh Thanks again, and I guess I'll see y'all then.